You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. Welcome to Modern Law, a new CBA podcast series where we discuss the law's ability to keep pace with change. Over the next few months, I'll be in conversation with leading legal minds and practitioners exploring this theme as it relates to a wide range of challenges at the intersection of law, tech progress, and modern society. On today's show, to kick off the series, is the law a solution to disinformation? I'll note here that we chose this topic, how to counter disinformation through legal means, as we're recording this on September 13th, a week before the 2021 Canadian federal election. So we saw social media and also digital advertising through the micro-targeting of voters being stories that were fairly widely reported in the media during this campaign. There was the item about liberal candidate Christian Freeland sharing a video that was marked by a Twitter uh, by Twitter as manipulated media. Although Canada's elections commissioner, to be fair, dismissed a complaint against her for that. There are reports, too, of uh, the liberals vastly outspending other major parties when buying ads on Facebook. Although, again, uh, the other major parties uh, were also participating in these kinds of endeavors. And of course, there are ongoing concerns that voters could be swayed by false narratives about COVID-19 and vaccination campaigns, to name but a few. To help us understand the issues at play, Eve Gaumont is with us today. Eve is an affiliate to Quebec's Observatory on the Societal Impact of AI and Digital Technologies, currently finishing a master's degree at Laval University, focusing on the risks and benefits of using AI to enhance the intelligibility of judicial information. She is also studying for the Quebec Bar. She uh, insisted that we uh, mention that. Uh, She has uh, published work on the topic of data privacy, online speech, AI regulation, privacy in the digital age, as well as papers in the field of machine learning. You can also read some of her work at Lawfare, where she is a contributor. Welcome, Ev, to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Let's get into it. Um, obviously, there have been, you know, just by way of background, there have been mounting concerns over the years, and uh, particularly since the 2016 U.S. election, uh, but also, you know, I can think of the uh, Brexit referendum. Uh, that a technologically driven media environment is, you know, distorting politics, sowing confusion, um, you know, I guess contributing to a state of information chaos generally. Before we get into some of the legal issues that might come up, help us understand how people in your line of work are diagnosing uh, the problem of disinformation. I mean, obviously, disinformation is hardly a new human invention. What's different about it today? Uh, is, is it social media, uh, that's the main driver of it? I think a lot of people presume it is. Uh, tell us how you see it playing out right now. I'm glad that you're asking this question. Uh, you know, we're facing a disinformation crisis and this crisis happened to take place in an era where technology and social media are ubiquitous. So we're tempted to believe, um, that the disinformation crisis is caused by technology and social medias. And if I may, um, all the fuss around Cambridge Analytica in 2016, um, Netflix documentaries such as um, The Big Hack, it fed this narrative. But the reality is more um, complex than that. Yokai Benkler uh, from Harvard Law School, uh, his work shows that the main culprit for the disinformation crisis in the U.S. is not technology. It is the media ecosystem that is getting increasingly polarized. 
Take the voter fraud story, uh, for instance. It was driven by the former president and mainly circulated through mass medias. Social media only played um, a secondary role. To a certain extent, it is also true in Canada. Um, after studying what happened with the Christian Freeland tweet that you mentioned earlier, the Canadian Election Disinformation Project from McGill University concluded that misinformation doesn't just spread through social media. Actually, nearly two-thirds of respondents who heard of this tweet, the Christian, the Christian Freeland tweet, did so through traditional media. So to answer your question, no, social media is not the main driver of disinformation and misinformation. So it's more an enabler. Uh, it's a way to broadcast misinformation. But from what I understand, it, it's created by the perhaps even the mainstream media environment by focusing on certain news stories. Exactly. It's what uh, Bankler call uh, a feedback loop. So mm -hmm. the, the news arises from mainstream media or um, a politician, and then it reverberates into social media, but uh, it doesn't start from there. And this is not the place where the main activity happens. Okay. There are also other concerns and, and, you know, um, you know, we talk about the current media environment because there are, of course, other participants outside, uh, the political parties who, and, and the media and mainstream media who play a big role in disseminating information. And we'll get into legal things afterwards, but what about concerns about computational propaganda? We, we, you know, the, we've seen stories emerge about deep fakes. Uh, the use of algorithms uh, in uh, feeding debates that are going on in public life. Should we worry about these political or ideological bots manipulating us? Worried um, or vigilant? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. But once again, I would like to take a deflationary stance. Okay. There's no need to panic. Um, and I feel like your question is twofold. So let's start with deep fakes. Okay. Deep fakes, uh, for those who don't know, are realistic fake videos created with AI. Mm -hmm. uh, they can portray people saying things that they've never said or doing stuff that they've never done. The technology is good enough that we could see some uses of it um, during election campaigns. Mm -hmm. Though for now, there's no real example uh, of disinformation incidents powered by deep fakes. What we've seen, though, is cheap fakes. Cheap fakes um, are manipulated media created with basic editing techniques like Photoshop. That we've seen a lot in the last presidential election in the U.S. And there are some examples in the current election, Canadian election as well. T take the Justin Trudeau, Willy Wonka ad um, that was launched right. by the conservative a few days before the election. It is right. one example. Uh, the O'Toole manipulated video about healthcare, so the Christian Freeland tweet. Uh, mm -hmm. It could arguably be seen as another example of like cheap fakes because it's a manipulated media uh, with basic editing techniques. So we definitely have to be vigilant about manipulated media. The European Union and its Artificial mm -hmm. Intelligence Act, so it's a regulation proposal, they are doing something quite interesting in that regard. Just to interrupt, this is their, uh, this is their regulation on uh, use, uh, regulatory use of AI, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, so the AI Act, which is a regulation proposal uh, mm -hmm. that was released in April to tw tw 2021. Right. Uh, there's a small provision in this act, which is pretty interesting. Um, they uh, 
would require that deep fakes uh, have to be deep fakes should be labeled as such. So if I'm placing a video using deep fake technology to uh, imitate uh, Brad Pitt or Donald Trump or Dustin Trudeau, no matter who, um, I should say that it is not a true video, but it is a deep fake. Mm-hmm. This could be an interesting way to prevent disinformation incidents powered by deepfake. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And the second part of your question about uh, computational propaganda bots, um, there are indeed some fake accounts on Twitter that are actually bots. Like we've seen it with Russian interference in the US. Um, however, in my opinion, um, the narrative around this threat is a bit overblown. It is not a very important threat. According to the Digital Democracy Project, uh, we are talking of 0.3% of all tweets posted during the 2019 election campaign. Um, so earlier we were saying that like Twitter is not the main driver of election misinformation or election information period. But now only 0.3% of this not very important driver of information is do- done by bots. So let's keep following that and let's be vigilant about that. Um, but that's not what is going to derail our election. Okay. I sometimes get a sense that, you know, journalists uh, being constantly on Twitter sometimes are, you know, uh, maybe professionally biased towards these opinions that, you know, the, the world is getting overrun by bots and disinformation artists. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to like your people, your friends around yourself that do not use and uh, like that, that are not in the academia or journalists. They don't know what happened with that. What is happening on Twitter? Like yeah. it's very niche. Yeah, of course. Um, that having said that, um, uh, Canada has had still to confront some challenges around disinformation and, or at least has felt that it was important enough to address it. Let's talk about, uh, you talked a little bit about, uh, AI regulation in Europe, uh, but let's talk a little bit about, uh, how Canada has gone about trying to address, uh, issues around disinformation from a legal perspective. First of all, is there, is there even a legal definition for disinformation? Broadly speaking, let's start by define what is disinformation because sometimes it's not totally clear. Mm-hmm. Um, disinformation is false, dis- is falsehood aimed at achieving a political goal, which is different from misinformation, which could be about uh, COVID-19, for instance. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but th- now that's not a legal definition. That's like a political definition. And uh, Canadian law does not straightforwardly regulate disinformation. So it doesn't define it either. We did in the past, though. We regulate it, and then so uh, we also defined it. Indeed, until uh, to, up until 2018, we had a provision prohibiting the action of making or publishing false statements about political figures' citizenship, place of birth, education, membership in a group, past legal offenses, or professional qualification. We're thinking of, uh, you know, some the birtherism campaign that went on in the States, for example. This was a, a exactly birtherism in the States or Andrew Scheer um, uh, claimed that he was uh, an, um, a an insurance, insurance broker. broker. Yeah. If it was done with the intention of influencing the result of an election, 
it would have been prohibited and um, passable of like five years in prison or $50,000 fine. Um, so quite the significant penalties. So you're talking about this provision. You're talking about this provision as, as if though it's in the past. What happened since then? Because it doesn't sound like that provision had a very long shelf life. Uh, yes and no. Uh, it existed uh, in one form or another since 1908, but mm -hmm. it was amended in 2018 to be more uh, specific. And it was contested in Ontario and found unconstitutional in February 2021. Um, it was. Quite surprising for me because it was written pretty narrowly uh, okay. and it was following the guidelines from RV Zondel, um, which gave some hints about how to regulate to prohibit false news, false informations. Um, yet because of the fact that there was um, a requirement, that, that there was no requirement that the publishing or a false statement was made knowingly, uh, it uh, the, the, the Ontario Superior Court found it unconstitutional because I could have, for instance, um, share um, the fact, let's take again uh, Andrew Shear claim, the fact that he was an insurance broker. I could have said, oh, he's trustworthy. Uh, he was, uh, he had a good job. Please, like on Facebook, please vote for him. I think he's going to be the best prime minister. And even though I didn't know that it was not true, I could have been prosecuted for saying that because the word knowingly was not was nowhere to be found in the provision. So you mean if I was um, if, if, if so if I was a social media user and I redistributed something or retweeted something claiming that Andrew Shear had been an insurance broker, uh, I could have been captured under the prohibition. Yes, even if that's I, very theoretical. Even even if I, I didn't know about, even had I not verified myself that he had been a an insurance broker, that would that would that would have been the problem. Yes, and now like the the, the election commissioner said that they came uh, during the trial and said that they wouldn't go after someone who was in such a situation, but mm -hmm. it was more like a an internal. Uh, a decision, like they, it's a decision not to enforce or enforce the provision. Yes. Instead of like the law still allowed them to do it. So this is why um, the Ontario Superior Court decided that it was unconstitutional. So, so there have been changes. Uh, and I think this is uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the Election Modernization Act. Uh, I, I understand that this provision probably came in from there, came in through that, uh, those reforms. Um, some of those new provisions are still in place? Yep. C can you tell us a little bit about then uh, the, the Modernization Election Act? There were a few uh, new provisions in the Election Modernization Act. There was prohibition, like we have regulated against uh, foreign, foreign advertising, for instance. Right. Uh, it was also the case that we... Like there was some caps caps uh, for third party that were ad, and there was the um, ad repository, which is the big uh, the the big thing that was implemented in 2018. That online platforms have to keep an online advertising repository. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so like large internet platforms such as Facebook um, right. are required to maintain an ad 
repository, that is to say, a registry of partisan advertising messages and election advertising messages for the pre-election, election and election period. That's the, that's how we now know, as you were saying in the, the introduction, that um, the liberals have spent more on advertising on Facebook and Instagram than the other four major parties combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a matter to monitor third parties advertisement, uh, sometimes called dark money ads, which is mm-hmm. strictly uh, limited in Canada. But I should say that the, the information that has to be made public on these um, repositories is insufficient. If we are to go further to fight this information, I think that the law should require more transparency on these um, repositories. The number of times an ad has been viewed, for instance, should be made public, I think. The audience targeted by the ad should also be um, made public. Like if someone wanted to micro-target an ad to people who identify as Jew haters on Facebook. Okay. If we're not to outrightly ban it, such practices, at least it should be public to deter people to engage in such practices. Like journalists should be allowed to go in the repository, the Facebook ad library and see, oh, wow, um, this is a weird targeting. Uh, it was a case, for instance, in uh, 2020 in the United States. Um, there were some advertisements floating around the Internet with uh, deceptive messages about mailing voting voters, mm-hmm. mailing voting. Uh, and they were micro targeted to um, minority voters in swing states. And uh, at the end of the day, what the Washington Post have seen it and um, made papers in the news, made a piece about it. And then Facebook uh, took down these advertisements. But there should be um, an easier way to find these uh, these uh, kind of advertisements that are problematic. Okay. Yeah, that's that's quite something. Uh, so. Disinformation is really actually often quite disguised in the sense that um, we don't know how people are being targeted. I guess there's a reason why people get targeted for, you know, buying a pair of shoes or buying an automobile and, you know, um, you know, some kind of market product. But what you're saying is that, uh, you know, in the political sphere, we should not be targeting people or we should be n- knowing why we're targeting people. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if it would be constitutional to say uh, that um, micro-targeting is, in political context, is um, prohibited. That mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would pass muster. Okay. But uh, the transparency requirement is a way to uh, to prevent it, even though you are not prohibitingly prohibiting it, like straightforwardly. If um, if it is public and well known that you're using labels that are not politically correct or like like not acceptable in terms of uh, pu- public opinion, that the effect might be similar. I don't think. Yeah, in the con- the present context where we're not facing a huge disinformation crisis, I'm not sure it would pass the OAT te- test if we wanted to prohibit. Mm-hmm. Micro-targeting, although some people are pondering the idea, um, but definitely more transparency would help us to take, like, understand better the problem and maybe, uh, like, better de- people to engage in such practices. There really is a sense that uh, there's certainly been a sense until recently that governments in the democratic West, at least, have uh, been reluctant to interfere 
uh, in this field, in the social media landscape through regulation. And uh, I'm guessing it's because they're afraid of being accused of limiting sp- free speech. But, you know, what are the challenges in, in formulating legal solutions? Yeah, of course, uh, in the North American environment, free speech is like a hallmark of our democracy. So it's very hard to limit free speech and it's very, it's seen as something very problematic. So in, of course it is, uh, one of the reasons why we are not tackling, uh, this information and regulation of social media. Uh, there's also some economic reasons, of course. Um, the United States are like this places where all the tech companies are. So, and it's, a, a, it's powering their economy. So there, this is also uh, one of the reason why, but we have to remember also that, um, the disinformation problem on the internet is still kind of recent. Mm-hmm. You know, law is not known to be so fast of a discipline. So maybe in addition to freedom of expression concerns, time concerns might also be a reason why government haven't acted yet. But more or less five years after online disinformation really clearly became problems. So like this year, we're seeing many states trying to find ways to tackle disinformation online. Um, there's some work done uh, around quite a bit of work done around the world this day, these days. The AU, for instance, is working on its 2020-2024 European Democracy Action Plan. Australia is also taking some steps towards uh, regulating disinformation and disinformation. So the field is moving quite quite fast, and it's honestly hard to follow. And I should maybe add something else. Um, I would like to point out something else, actually. Uh, There are very democratic states, like in the democratic West, but with different free speech tradition that have already acted to, um, to prohibit disinformation online. Germany okay. is the most striking example with the Nest DG, a law which since 2018 required that obviously illegal content, such as denial of the Holocaust, you know, that's right. the reason why they have a different free speech tradition, um, insult, malicious go- gossip, is taken down by platform in a delay of 24 hours after uh, a complaint or it's a notice and takedown system. Mm-hmm. Um, many people are arguing that is the path to a less democratic world and that it um, is an example to countries such as China or so on that uh, like legitimizing these countries to control speech and limit freedom of expression. but. It is something that exists and in a very democratic country. And it, uh, you know, the notice and takedown system is kind of an interesting one because one of the criticisms I've heard about that is, you know, that, or that we hear about that is it's actually not a very feasible means of doing things when you have so many people out there spreading sometimes hateful or, uh, disinformation, uh, stories out there. And I think we're getting a sense anyway, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the major media or social media platforms are really struggling with taking down posts and tweets and whatnot. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yes. The old point is to determine what is good speech and bad speech. That's the, the, the problem. Like the line between truth and falsehood is not so clearly defined. 
So that's the main problem. After that, like the notice and takedown system, it's a system that works for IP claims. Like um, it's not necessarily hard to implement. The real problem is like, how do you determine which content you want to take to, to, to keep up and which content you want to take down. And this is not a technological problem. It is like a, a question that, exists for since the dawn of time, like censorship and all of that. It's always the same question. Are you, are we asking some people to stop saying some stuff because we don't agree with it or because it's false? Uh, what is false? Like take Salman Rushdie's uh, Satanic verses, for instance, in the Islamic world, it's considered lies. It could be sanctioned quite heavily. Right. Yet in the democratic world, it's kind Free of explained. Yeah. Um, what What else do you think um, needs to be done? I mean, you, you, you gave us a little bit of a tour of the world. Some countries addressing disinformation through uh, legislative means. Uh, what would you like to see done to craft solutions to these disinformation challenges? You talked about transparency. Yeah. Transparency is something very important in my mind because it's a way to understand the problem properly and see how our actions are working or not. And it is also a a way to make sure that the regulation that we already have are actually working. Like, like if we have no means to see a micro targeted, targeted ad paid for by a foreign actor, then we cannot sanction it. So, As I was saying earlier, the repositories should be more complete, more thorough, more information required to be put in this repository. It should be like in 2018, when uh, the the mandatory repository was put into effect, Google decided that it would not, uh, the company would not display any political advertisement anymore because they thought that it was not possible for for them to put such a, a repository in place. We should see how to regulate all platforms in a way that we can uh, touch on all possible uh, ways that disinformation is spread. Also, uh, WhatsApp, it's a way how um, disinformation circulates. So we should make sure that every internet platform is regulated. But um, there's also some other kind of regulation that should be put in places. Last year, I wrote a paper for Lawfare um, in which I compared the American and Canadian situation with, with respect to disinformation. And the conclusion of the piece was that Canada does seem, doesn't seem to be facing a disinformation crisis um, of comparable magnitude to the one facing the United States. And one of the reasons why was campaign finance. Ca- Canada is known for its so-called egalitarian model. Um, the egalitarian model is characterized by quite restrictive spending limits for political parties and third parties advertisers. Uh, in order to promote a level playing field between political candidates. Now, with, um, advertisement online being way cheaper than it was, uh, than it used to be on traditional media, those limits are a bit outdated. It doesn't, the egalitarian model doesn't work all, all well, uh, because Paying for an ad online is so cheap that 
it doesn't make any difference. I think that we might want to think about modernizing the egalitarian model to take into account um, online advertising. Uh, that means updating the Canada Election Act to do it. Uh, Michael Powell from the University of Ottawa suggests that we should have spending limits for traditional medias and some spending caps specifically for online advertisement. Uh-huh. I find this idea printing. We, yeah. No, no, I'm just agreeing. So, because, uh, I, presumably, uh, the cost of advertising on social media is so much less. Um, exactly. So that, that we need to, we, we need to adapt our, our spending caps accordingly. Exactly. Um, so this, this idea from Michael Powell, I find it pretty interesting. He also proposes um, that platforms be required to conduct due diligence to make sure that no foreign actors are paying for political ads in Canada. It is already prohibited under the Canadian Election Act, but it is hard to enforce. Uh, if Facebook, for instance, was making sure that political advertisement is not paid in uh, foreign currency, that people who are paying for advertisement were, are having um, an address in Canada, this would be a way to make sure that, that foreign actors are not interfering in our um, Canadian political environment. Uh, earlier, we also think about Section 91.1 of the Canadian Election Act, the provision against um, false information regarding political candidates. It was not perfectly written, but the idea was pretty interesting in my honest opinion. So I think that we should read the ruling and rewrite the provision to follow the guidelines uh, proposed by the, the judge and make some similar provision uh, reenacted in the future. For this election, it, of course, won't be possible. But in the future, I think, even though it was not a, a, a provision that was used in the past, mm-hmm. nobody has ever been convicted of it. It is still, it still is a, like a, a garde-fou, a, a way to protect ourselves from any a, a guardrail. Guardrail, yeah. And inter- interesting to note that it was actually planned by the government in the by the government in the last federal election, uh, last federal budget. Uh-huh. Okay. Um- I, w- I want to touch upon another uh, topic, uh, well, a, a related topic, uh, and I'm, I'm trying not to conflate the two issues. But it is interesting, too, that on the final day of uh, the sitting of the House of Commons this past spring, the Liberal government released a consultation document, um, and this was on their plans to tackle online hate. We'll see what happens uh, following the outcome of the election, and I don't know if someone else got into power, whether they would pick up on this. But um, what seems to be compli- contemplated is a new uh, framework, legal framework, that would target uh, the most uh, reprehensible types of harm lo- harmful content online, so including criminal content. My sense is that uh, there have been some pretty negative reactions to the document. And I'm wondering uh, how you view that and you know, what it says about our ability to to regulate the spread of disinformation and the spread of harmful and hateful content. One of the main critiques about the proposal regarding online hate is that it does not take into account what the government has been told by experts. And some like there have been there has been 
many informal consultation. Many experts have participated to these consultation, and yet the concern that were voiced during these consultation does not seem to have influenced the content of the proposal. What were those uh, concerns uh, that have been voiced? People like Cynthia Ku, Emily Ledlaw, Susie Dunn are long-time ad- advocates for equality rights and protection of women against technology-facilitated violence. Mm-hmm. Um, they've put forward solution, even like actual legal regime proposition. And it doesn't seem to have been taken into account. Some sort of thing that are worrying them is like that the RCMP, the content flagged on social media could be communicated to the RCMP and could be prosecuted by the RCMP. Um, and as a result, if the proposal was to become black letter law, it could hurt vulnerable people, people who are literally people the bill aims to protect. Indeed, like vulnerable people are not only targeted by trolls, they are also victim of uh, abuses from the state and their speech could be silenced by the state as well. Mm-hmm. And queer people could be um, there. There's some worries that queer people, for instance, their content would be flagged as um, sexual pornography or something like that and be taken down while it's a means for them to, ex- to empower themselves. One of the main worries about uh, the online aid um, proposal is that it will like hurt the very people it aims to protect. Right. And I think that when you, you're asking what important for our ability to regulate the spread of disinformation, I think that the lack of consultation and lack of taking what experts are saying into account is something that we have to start to learn from. Um, if we are to regulate social media to tackle disinformation, uh, we should do it only after heavy consultation with experts and stakeholders. And we should be cautious about not seeing the tree, but seeing the forest. That is to say, not uh, only regulating social medias, but also all of the environment that has created the disinformation crisis. That means education, uh, f- um, funding, great journalism, the media ecosystem is one of the important component of why we're not facing such a big disinformation crisis. We have to focus on that. We have to focus on maintaining the equalitarian, the egalitarian model for campaign finances, make sure like spending caps, third parties advertising, make sure that it's still up to date in the online world. But if we, I don't think that we should tackle speech per se. I don't think that we should say, Oh, we're going to take, take down disinformation. Like the, 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 the proposal, online hate uh, proposal is trying to implement a notice and take down regime for illegal content. Mm-hmm. Something of the like of what the NSDG is providing for. And I'm not sure it is the way to, to, to go. I don't think uh, we should focus that much of this on the speech. Because actually, it might not even be constitutional to uh, limit some some political speech, but we should focus on all of the ecosystem around speech. So we're not saying you can, cannot say that, but we're saying, oh, you cannot pay millions of dollars to make sure that everyone 
sees what you're seeing, saying you cannot pay millions of dollars to micro target your, your, what you're saying to people, uh, that believe the same thing as you do without oversight from other people from election Canada. So that mm-hmm. is the thing that I, th- I think we should, um, remember from the recent move of the liber- liberal government. Consult with expert, listen to expert and don't get into the hype of social media, social media, social media, and think about the whole ecosystem of disinformation. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a uh, absolutely fascinating talk um, about uh, an issue that is probably going to merit our attention for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, and uh, we'll, we will try not We'll try to resist the social media hype. I, I don't know with what degree of success, but uh, these are things to think about as we take stock of the election results as well that will uh, come in next week. Thank you so much, Eve Gaumont, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed this first installment of Modern Law, our new addition to CBA Podcasts. You can hear this podcast and others on our main CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. So please, subscribe to get notifications of our new episodes, and to hear some French, listen to Droit Moderne. And please, share it with your friends and colleagues, and if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA Natmag, and on Facebook, and check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. Finally, I just want to say a big, big thank you to our podcast editor, Anne-Catherine Desulmets, and we'll catch you next month for our next episode.